Well, we're going to go ahead and get started. And if Cindy, wants, if somebody wants to pass out those papers, it seems like uh, overkill because basically you're getting a copy of my notes, uh, the one on baby dedication. And uh, a couple reasons why I'm doing it. There's so many scripture references in there. I, I like to have lots of scripture to back up our position on what we believe and why. Uh, so <clears throat> I'll be pretty much following these notes. We won't be going through a lot of the scriptures here just for time's sake, but they're all listed in there in the notes that you'll be getting for most of the, most of the topics. Um, the first two will be a little repetitious, probably one following the other. I'm going to start with baby dedication and uh, why we ba- uh, dedicate children, babies, and then we will talk about water baptism after that. And uh, kind of what we cover in the first one will, um, I guess, be preliminary to the second one or maybe a little repetition. But let's go ahead and, and pray and get started. You hate to make the ones that are on time wait, right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we do thank you for this time that we can gather God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be present and be our teacher, our guide. Lord, I pray that uh, you just help me to articulate the things that we want to share clearly, that can be understood. And Lord, if there is anything that I misspeak or say that is not of you, God, I pray that you would uh, just guard each mind, that it would have no impact whatsoever. So Lord, we give this time to you. Uh, We pray that you'd be glorified in it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of, the time, one of the things I almost always get asked about, especially when people come from other uh, mainline denominations who do infant baptism, is why don't you guys baptize babies? And uh, then we even heard from one of the pastors in town via one of our members that says, you guys are against baptism. Well, <clears throat> we don't baptize babies. True. We are fully supportive of baptism. So the thing is to understand what we're talking about. So in the baby dedication, first of all, uh, our kind of our position has been, for as long as we've been in existence, we want to be able to support any religious practice that we participate in as best we can with Scripture. If there is nothing in Scripture, um, it really makes you question, why would we do something like that? So we, we try to back it up with Scripture as much as possible, uh, so that we have the sound authority to stand on. Now, when I talk about baby dedication versus infant baptism, um, my role here isn't to try to criticize any other church, any other denomination um, whatsoever. Um, I'm just going to state, as we've said all from the get-go on these classes, this is our position as a church, so you know who we are and what we believe, and hopefully why we believe it. So when there's differences, it's not about personal attack at all. So I hope you don't ever hear it that way. Um, starting out, we believe that there's some really clear evidence in the Scripture of certain things that are required for baptism. When, the, when, the, when in Scripture they talk about people being baptized, we think there's very clear that there's things that must take place before a person is baptized. So the key thing is to start can a person who wants to be baptized meet the criteria that we see in Scripture to be baptized? And if they can't, we shouldn't be baptizing them. 
there's one set. The Bible tells us clearly God's not a respecter of persons. So he lays out, here are the requirements. Here is the process or the procedure we see taking place before baptism. He doesn't have two sets, one for adults, one for babies. We believe it's the same for everybody. So there's a few questions that we would ask in regards to those things. First of all, in in baptism, it seems very, very clear in Scripture over and over in many different places that a person has to hear and understand the gospel. They have to hear it and understand it, first of all. And there are many scriptures, and I said, I'm not going to read all these scriptures, but there's, the scriptures are written there for you. Um, so anybody who's been baptized or going to be baptized for it to be the real thing from a biblical perspective, it would seem logical and it would seem biblical that somewhere along the line that somebody's presented them the gospel message, so they've heard it, and they understand it. Make sense? So the question would be, can an infant hear and understand the gospel message? Well, I think we would all say, no, that's not possible. They might hear something. They certainly aren't going to understand it at all. The second thing is, they not only need to hear it, understand it, but they need to believe the gospel. When you look through the scripture, wherever it talks, especially throughout the book of Acts, wherever it talks about somebody being baptized, they've heard the gospel message, they've understood the gospel message, and then they've chosen to believe the gospel message. Um, If you look at some of the scriptures there, the Galatians one, when it talks about many, or in some all, or it said some places the entire family, and it makes reference to children, Um, just because the word children is there, it simply means the the offspring of whatever family is being talked about. Uh, It doesn't mean there's babies. A lot of times you'll hear people who, who uh, practice infant baptism, saying, well, the whole family, and we can assume that there are babies or children in that family, can't we? Well, you can assume anything you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. So when we look at that, it says, believe and then baptized. Over and over again, you'll see in Acts eight twelve, when they believed... When the people in Samaria gave heed to the gospel that was preached, both men and women were baptized. When, they were, when were they baptized? After they believed. It would be hard for an infant to believe. Therefore, it would be hard for them on a scriptural basis to be baptized. The third thing, they need to repent of their sins. You know, this is one of the interesting things that I run into when I, when I meet with individuals, whether it's doing Steps to Freedom or, or counseling or whatever kind. Uh, one of the first things I try to establish is, are they a Christian or aren't they? And I usually ask them, because they'll almost always say yes, right? Usually they'll always say yes. And some of you that are in here have experienced this with me. Then I'll say, would you explain to me how I become a Christian if I've never heard? If I came to you and said, you're a Christian? I want what you have. What would you tell me? How could I become a Christian? And more often than not, um, they can't explain to me how to become a Christian. And it's not always because they've never ever heard, that they've never thought about it, never articulated it, never explained the steps to someone. But one of the things that almost always gets left out is the need for repentance. You know, the need for repentance. They've heard the gospel message. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, that's good. You believe that he died for your sins. Yep, that's good. 
So you accept what he did. That's good. Now, did you repent of your sins? You know, without repentance, there's no forgiveness. Would you agree with that? Okay, so, and, and we can make this assumption sometimes, and I would encourage if you're sharing the gospel with somebody to really make sure you make this clear. We can assume, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins. Great. We can assume they repented. Don't assume anything. That's my, my advice. Don't assume anything. I ask him, so did you truly, after you accept that fact that Jesus did die for your sins, did you repent of your sins? And after they repent and, and, and believe, and I think here when we look at this, uh, part of it is repenting of your sins to be baptized, to be truly saved. The um, commitment to put God first. Um, notice also, if you're tracking with me on that line of thinking, can anybody here repent for my sins for me? It's not possible, is it? It's a very personal thing. So whatever my belief system is, whatever I've done personally, it doesn't do any of you any good. It doesn't do my children any good. No one else can be saved by my faith, my repentance, right? So the sin issue has to be dealt with on a personal basis. So it would seem like there would have to be a hearing of the gospel, an understanding of the gospel that would lead to repentance, And we're working our way towards, okay, great. This person's getting closer and closer to being one who can be baptized. And then before, the last one you see at the bottom of that page, uh, before baptism, to confess Christ. And you'll see this, especially in Romans 10, it's very clear, you know, to confess Christ. Confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that's why I ask people, if they they go through, and, and usually what happens when I'm having somebody lead me to Christ when we get through and they're stumbling and they don't exactly know where to go and I don't, I'm not trying to do it to ever embarrass anybody or anything like that, but then I'll say, well, here, does this sound right to you? And, you know, I'll go through it. Well, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And I do believe, yeah, I believe he died for my sins. Somebody had to die. He died in my place. I, yeah, I believe that. And you believe he was raised from the dead. Yes. So you believe that when you repent, your sins can be forgiven. Yes. So more often than not, they, they've got all that. But then I do ask them, you know, have you ever personally then accepted Jesus Christ and confessed him as your Lord and Savior in prayer? Well, not really. Or sometimes they say, yeah, I prayed a prayer once, and that was before they ever understood the other parts. But to confess with your mouth. It seems like the Bible is clear. We need to confess with our mouth. So when you look at those four things, they're kind of just like general qualifications. If somebody in here is, has, when we get to baptism in the next topic, if someone in here has never been baptized, I would say you should get baptized. Well, how do you know if you are qualified to be baptized? This is where you'd look, these first four points. You know, have you uh, heard and understood the gospel? We hope yes. Have you believed the gospel? Have you repented of your sins? And have you accepted Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord of your life, surrendering your life to him? The answer yes to all those things? You're qualified to be baptized. And the point I'm going through here, even though we're talking about dedication, I think it's important because this is one of the things that when new people come, if they have a religious background, the whole baptism thing is a, is a question and challenge for them. So because of those things, I would say it's pretty clear that an infant or a child, before they reach this age of understanding, no way they can go through those things. 
You know, I believe they are saved by the grace of God until they reach that age of accountability, whatever it is. So then people will ask me, well, how old do the kids have to be before you'll baptize them? I leave that up to the parents. It's not an age issue. I know some churches have specific ages and all of that stuff. I, I talk to the parents and I say, do you believe your children, a child is old enough to understand this and really have made a confession of faith? And they'll say yes or no. Or usually they might say, well, I'm going to go through it again with them just to make sure. And then we do have them share uh, a testimony. And we don't expect a real articulate testimony from a five-year-old. But you know what? They should be able to tell you something if they understood what they did. So I, you know, we leave that as a church really mostly up to the parents. Um, if they come to me and we talk about it and they just don't have a clue, you know, we'll, we'll go through it again and I'll try to feel, get a feeling for do they really understand uh, and then talk with the parents. But we, with that age of accountability, we don't have a hard, fast rule. You all know kids. Every one of them is different. Every one of them matures differently, understands differently. So why, why make them wait if they truly understand? Um, remember, and we'll touch on this again, but remember the story of the Ethiopian and Philip? Did anybody remember that? When, when Philip was <clears throat> going down the road and he sees this Ethiopian sitting in a chariot of some sort and he's reading scripture. And Philip stops and has a conversation with him. And basically, what did he do? The Ethiopian saying, you get this? That's kind of what he was saying. Does anybody really understand this stuff? And he sits down and, and he talks to him. He shares about the good news of Christ. He shares about what had happened. And he gets to the point where the Ethiopian says something to him. Anybody remember what he said? Yeah, what must I do to be baptized? I want to be baptized. Anybody remember what Philip said? If you believe, you may. Nothing prevents it. You know, so that confessing it with your mouth and believing, then you can. So, having said all that, four things. Hear and understand the gospel, believe it, repent of our sins, and confess Christ. Therefore, we dedicate children. Dedication. Uh, first, I just gave a simple dedication from the World Book Encyclopedia, if anybody remembers what that was. <clears throat> simply says, a setting apart or being set apart for a sacred purpose. We believe every child born has a sacred purpose. We just don't know what it is for all of them. We believe that they have a destiny. So when we're, when we're talking about dedicating a child unto the Lord, we're praying and blessing them and setting apart for whatever their sacred purpose is. Um, our sacred purpose is to raise up a child to fulfill that destiny that God has. So when we question the parents during the dedication, you know, we ask questions about, will you train up your child? Will you do everything you can to teach them the scriptures? Will you set a godly example of what it looks like to be a Christian before them as they're growing up? Things like that. Uh, holding, holding them uh, accountable, letting them uh, commit in front of a congregation that that child may grow up to fulfill its destiny to give glory to God, which is part of all of our destiny. So, why do we dedicate the children? Well, forgetting everything I've told you already, those are the reasons why we dedicate instead of baptize, but why do we dedicate? First of all, um, to bless the child and to be encouraged ourselves as we're blessing the child. 
and we're following what we see as a godly example in the Scripture. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth, but even in the Old Testament with circumcision was a setting aside of God's people, of that child. And we could make the correlation between that, but you know, we're just not going to get into all of that this, that deeply tonight, but we, we could. But we see examples of children being uh, dedicated to the Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the, the one that we go to most often, and we'll look at in just a second, is Hannah taking her son Samuel. But in the New Testament, one we see is a really good example, Jesus being taken and dedicated. So we dedicate the kids to bless them uh, because we want to follow the example in Scripture. Um, the parents in Scripture were publicly dedicating their children to God because they understood that God had given them that gift and entrusted that child to them to take care of even though they were his, ch- his children. And thirdly, as a church, we, we dedicate, so it's a public, a public witness of the dedication. It's an opportunity, a joyful opportunity, to recognize once again and give glory to God that that child is a gift from God. The Bible tells us clearly that all life is a gift from God. So when we're publicly doing that in front of a congregation, And if you've been to one of our dedications, I think I forgot it in one of them, though, recently. But after we ask the the, the husband and wife these questions, we then say, and as a congregation, do we commit to be praying for this child, to be able, and helping these parents, there's any way that we can, to raise up this child to bring glory and honor to God. So publicly, the parents are making a public commitment, and we as a congregation then make a commitment to be a part of that as the family of God and as the grace of God allows us. So the two biblical examples that I chose are the ones you hear most common. Hannah in 1 Samuel 27, 28, if you know the story, Hannah had been barren and she had been pleading to God for a child, pleading for a son. And God answers her prayer and gives her a son. And in verses 27, 28, it says, I prayed for this child and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the story at all, you know Samuel, Samuel had a particular calling, right? What was his calling? To be a clown. <laughs> Anybody have any idea? Come on. What? Prophet. Thank you. All right. So he had a particular calling, and you might look at it and say, well, he was a special, special instrument of God. He was called to be set apart from, for life, for his destiny, to be a prophet. I would, I, again, I want to just say we believe that everybody's called and has a destiny to be something. We don't necessarily know what it is as clearly as this was spoken in the Old Testament about Samuel, but we know that, that he has a particular calling, and so do our kids. So even when it says for his whole life will be given over to the Lord, that would be our prayer, I hope, as parents, that our kids' whole life would be given over to the Lord. Whether they're called to be a businessman or a, or a teacher or a, a whatever, um, or a prophet. We would pray that way. And then the second one, Mary and Joseph's dedication to Jesus in Luke chapter 2. In Luke 22, verse 22, it tells us they brought Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. 
as was the tradition, they brought Jesus to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. And a little bit further in, in chapter 2, it says, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Any questions so far? I got one. Yes. When in history did they start doing that baptism versus when they started branched off to the churches? Did somebody discover that? It's, the infant baptism, you mean? Yeah. Oh, gee, boy. It's early centuries. Um, most of that was started by the Catholic Church really early. Really, really early. 300, 400, 500, they started doing it. And it became sprinkling of water somewhere along that time, but quite early. And if you, if you look at dedication, baptism, we'll talk more about baptism in a few minutes, but you'll see, uh, if you Google it, you'll see all kinds of history and the different methods, um, what it means, kind of like communion and the stuff we'll talk about. There's a lot of different things. That's why, you know, I'm not out here to condemn anybody or criticize them, but this is why what we see as being the most biblical way of doing it. Um, what does this Bible say about dedicating our children? Here's just a few examples, and you can see it throughout Old and New Testament times. It was, it was um, common practice. Uh, a joyful opportunity for parents to acknowledge God's incredible blessing of children as a gift from God. In Psalms 127.3, children are a gift from the Lord and they are a reward from Him. We're dedicating the child. We're acknowledging that this is a tremendous gift from God. A formal recognition that the child belongs to God. It's not only a gift from God, but it's a gift that He's given us to nurture, to take care of, to raise, to train up, but it still belongs to Him. It's still His. In Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. The world and all its people belong to him. It's a public commitment of the part of the parents and the body of Christ to teach God's word and encourage them in their spiritual development. Uh, you may be familiar with Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 5. This famous scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Train up our children. It's that command to be training up our kids. And then a challenge for parents to raise your children according to God's standards. And in, in Ephesians 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So this is why we dedicate our kids instead of practice infant baptism. Any questions? Yes. I, I go make sure I point out at least two different things. One is, what do they believe saves a person? What, how, do we, how does anybody get saved, first of all? Is it saved by grace through faith alone? 
So there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Because I want to try to share what I believe the truth of the gospel message is first. So that, that we're saved by faith, grace by faith, not by works. Okay, so that, that, that baby obviously can't understand and has no faith of its own. But then I make sure that I tell them that I believe, we believe as a church, that, uh, and we look uh, primarily to the, the story of David and Bathsheba and their baby when their baby died. We believe that children are, are, are truly under God's grace until that age of accountability. So that if a child dies and hasn't been baptized, they're saved. And we go to the scriptural example of, if, if you're familiar with the story, I, I, I'll go into it a little bit, but David and Bathsheba. David, David had an affair with Bathsheba. She was married. She got pregnant, had a child. And the child was got terribly sick. And while the child was terribly sick, David was, it talks about putting on sackcloth and ashes, and he was grieving, he was fasting, he was praying for this child to get well. And his servants were doing everything they could to encourage him, to, to come alongside him, to, come on, you've got to eat, all this kind of thing. And then the baby died. Just as the prophet, just as he had been told, the baby died. And then when the baby died, David got up, cleaned up, and ate. And, the, and the, the servants were like, we don't get this. While the baby was alive and sick, you were, you were mourning and in ashes and fasting. And now when the baby dies and is gone, you're, you're awake and you're, you're eating and you've gotten cleaned up. We don't get it. And David's response to him was, the child can no longer come to me but I will go to the child. And we believe that's a clear picture and say, one day I will join my child in heaven for eternity. So we believe that, and I would try to make sure those two things, that they know we think that baby, we believe biblically that those babies, miscarriages, aborted babies, infants that die before their age of accountability, they are in heaven. We believe that's biblical. But we also believe that... Baptism doesn't save anybody. It's, it's a work that doesn't save anybody. Now, anybody want to stone me yet? <laughs> I grew up in a church where that was not the way it was taught. And many of you probably did too. Yes, Rick. Amen. Okay, then we will go on and talk about baptism because we do believe in baptism, contrary to what somebody might say. We just don't believe in infant baptism. We believe baptism is an important part of everybody's religious experience. We believe when Jesus commissioned the disciples before he he ascended to heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we believe baptism is a very, very important part of our religious experience, our Christian experience. So if anybody says we don't believe in baptism, please correct them. 
We definitely believe in baptism. We don't practice infant baptism is the difference. So, as I said, and talking to Stephanie, that uh, we don't believe baptism saves anybody. Okay? That would be an example of works. You could look at it that way. Saved by works. We don't believe that. So then, if that's the case, what's the purpose of baptism? Since salvation is by grace through faith alone. Well, water baptism, we believe, is clearly a figure or type of something that has already taken place in the life of a believer the moment they got saved. Water baptism is an ordinance that represents identifying with what Christ did, identifying with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We're publicly identifying with that. The picture, and I, 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 the notes on this one is probably as complete, but the picture of this, if you, if you think of baptism the way we practice it, and we, we practice by immersion, in other words, going under the water, um, and we'll talk about why, but if you picture that, if you're standing out in the water, okay, you're standing in the water, so we have this um, being crucified, standing in the water, buried, going under the water, being raised from the dead, coming up out of the water. A picture of Christ's crucifixion, burial, resurrection. And we're identifying with that in our own lives when we get baptized. So it is a picture, uh, or spiritual picture, of our baptism, our identification with Christ. Um, You're saved the instant that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and submit your life to him. That's when you're saved. So that's all taken care of before you are baptized. So it's an identification with the picture of it. Um, The picture proclaims four different things that I listed here. It's a picture, and it proclaims a believer's death, burial, and resurrection, as I just said. Colossians 2, verse 12, it says, We are buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are raised with him or risen with him through the faith of the operations of God who hath raised him from the dead. Another picture or another aspect of that picture, it proclaims the death of our old old self to sin and our resurrection to this walking in a newness of life, that new creature in Christ. In Romans 6, 4, it says, As Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So we're proclaiming that, that old person that goes in the water coming out of the water. And some people, I don't know how about some of you here, but I know some people have experienced an amazing spiritual transformation, if you would, just in the act of baptism. Um, they've been saved, and, and they come up out of that water, and it's like God has just, it's like they left the junk in the water. It doesn't always happen that way, but we've seen amazing, amazing things taking place, and that person walking in a newness of life Third, it's a picture that proclaims our faith in the Trinity. Now, I don't want to get legalistic with this. You know, I don't think there's a magic way of saying words when we're baptizing them. But it is interesting in the Bible we see, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have chosen when we baptize somebody, that's what we do. 
we, when they go underwater, before they go underwater, we say, we're going to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we believe when you do that, there is, again, we're confessing our faith and belief that there is a trinity. You know, as Christians, we believe in the trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three personalities, one God. And there's, so there is that identification with it. Now, if you were baptized and they said, in the name of Jesus, you're baptized. Okay? It's, it's not a thing to get religious about. But if we're going to do it, we'd just like to model it as close as we can to what we think is the way it would have been done in the book of Acts. In uh, Matthew 28 there, it says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the fourth picture that we see there, it proclaims the putting on of Christ. Again, in Galatians, it says, For ye all, ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does it mean to put on Christ? Just religious words, right? Put on Christ. Well, we are putting on the righteousness of Christ. That cloak of righteousness that it's talked about. You know, we're a new creature in Christ. We are, we've been set free from the power of sin. doesn't mean we won't choose to sin. We will. But we have the, we have the opportunity to not sin. And when God looks at us now, he doesn't see us as Mike, the sinner. He sees me having put on Christ, the righteousness of Christ. So when he sees you or me, he doesn't look at us with all of our sin. No more. When as we repent, it's done. It's the righteousness of Christ. Does that make sense? It's an important thing. I want to make sure we all get it. You know, some people are so convinced because of what they've grown up hearing that somehow or other they're not good enough, not worthy enough. God can love everybody but me type of thing. If he looks at me, he knows what I've done. All that dark secret sin, he knows. He doesn't see it. Once we've repented of it, it's dealt with. He removes it. Doesn't look at it ever again. What he sees is the righteousness of Christ. That cloak of righteousness should bring us great, great freedom, good motivation to continually repent when we sin and get convicted of that sin. So then, who should be baptized? Um, this is going to be very repetitious, so I'm going to just go through it unless you have some questions because we covered so much of this in the first one uh, on why we choose to dedicate. But in Acts 2.41, we observe that they received the word, then they were baptized. And as you read through the book of Acts, and why do I keep referring to the book of Acts? That's when the church was birthed. That's when this whole new thing, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and he told the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem, this amazing promise is going to come to you that I'm going to have the Father send, called the Holy Spirit. And when he comes upon you, you're going to receive power to create this thing called the church. You're going to receive power to do all these things I've called you to do. So we look at the book of Acts to see what did the church look like? You know, here we are 2,000 years later. Man's made a mess of it in a lot of ways. And we'll probably look back someday when we're in heaven and understand completely and go, boy, did we goof that up. But we want to do the best we can. And that's where we're saying this is what we believe and hopefully why we believe it makes sense. Uh, So they received the word. In Acts 8, there's a number of different places. When they believed, then they were baptized. You'll see when they go to the, the, the jailer's family, he believed and they were baptized. 
Cornelius and his family believed. They heard the word, believed, and were baptized. Never once, never once do you hear they were baptized and that they were believers. Never once. And try as they may, you will never find a place where it talks about an infant being baptized in the Scripture. Nowhere. If you're going to get an explanation or a, 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 or, or a, a teaching on why, why some denominations do that, they'll usually go to the grace thing or because of the family thing. And if you look at it, when I just told you earlier about we believe a baby until the age of accountability is saved, it's a grace thing. But we don't believe baptism is the door that opened that grace thing from God. Does that make sense? We believe it's just a grace of God thing. You know, the baptism does not open the door. There's no works involved here. So, who must? They must hear, receive the word. Uh, they believe they can be baptized. In Acts chapter 10, there's a number of other scriptures. Uh, we see they believed, received the Holy Ghost, then they were baptized. Believed, received the Holy Ghost, and were baptized. We believe that you receive the Indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the moment of salvation. The moment of salvation, you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I stress that word indwelling. Um, we'll be talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit next week. Um, we believe that is a second event. Sometimes takes place at the same time as the indwelling. But not always. Um, but the indwelling. So the Holy Spirit's there. They, they believe. They got saved. They're baptized. And I mentioned the Philippian, Philippian jailer. You know, he again was like the Ethiopian eunuch. He says, what must I do to be baptized? You know, you wouldn't think it doesn't get much clearer than that. Somebody asked in the Bible, what must I do to be baptized? The answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then it says he and his whole family were baptized. They shared the gospel with them all and they all got saved and were baptized. So we believe, according to the biblical pattern, again, I'm beating a dead horse here, that anybody who is saved, anybody who has heard and understood the gospel, chosen to believe it, repent of their sins, confess Jesus as Lord, is ready to be saved. How should they be baptized? Again, I want to stress, we don't want to be legalistic, and I'm not being critical. We just have a desire as a church to do it as similarly as we see in the Scriptures. Okay? That's it. If someone chooses to do it differently, that's what they choose. How is a believer to be baptized? The word baptized, baptizio, basically means to be submerged. Submerged underwater. And if you look through early history, um, even before Christ, the Jews, when there'd be a... a, 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 a uh, Pagan, decide they want to become a Jew, they had a baptism thing. And it was a submersion thing. It was a little more complicated than that, but they did. So the submersion, baptism and being submersion, the meaning of that word is clear. In Matthew 3 and in Mark 1, um, you see when John the Baptist was baptizing, it was always in a river. You know, we can debate how much water. Was he standing ankle deep and reaching down and throwing it at him or what? We don't, you know, it doesn't say that. But it seems clear, much water is what it says. Much water was taken and required. Um, 
In Acts 8, 38 through 39, that's the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, if you want to look at that. They, what, what, do I do to be saved? what must I do to be baptized? Believe and be saved. What prevents me? Nothing. Let's go do it. They went down and walked into the river, walked into the stream, and were baptized. And as I've already said in Romans 6 there, you see real clear that baptism fills these three types, the death, burial, and resurrection. It, it, it states it just clearly, identifying us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, sprinkling with water doesn't really give you that picture at all. Now, having said that, if I was somewhere and somebody got ex- accepted Christ and they said to me, Mike, I want to be baptized right now, today. And we look around, there's just no water. There's no pond, there's no pool, there's no tank, there's no nothing. I'm going to get a glass of water and dump it over their head and baptize them. Or sprinkle them if there's not that enough water to even have a glass full. I, you know, I, I, again, I don't want to be legalistic. It, it really is a picture of what's taking place. If there's not water there, there's not water there. Does that make sense? So, <laughs> hope that's okay with most of you. But you can imagine if, if you're leading someone to the Lord in the mission field and there's no water and you're only going to be there a few days and they want to be baptized... I don't believe they should ever be turned down from being baptized. We'd use whatever is available. So again, with all these things, we're trying to do it the best we know how according to what we believe Scripture says, but we're not here to cast stones. Any questions on any of that? I would encourage them to be baptized as a believer. Uh, We call it believer's baptism, adult baptism, whatever you want to call it, but believer's baptism. If you were baptized as an infant, I was baptized as an infant. Our oldest daughter was baptized as an infant. Um, I have been baptized by um, immersion. My daughter was baptized in immersion. Um, If we came from a if, you know, we're here, most of us here, if we did go to church, it was usually a Lutheran or Catholic or Methodist. Almost anything we were exposed to had infant baptism. But there was a few Baptists and some E-Frees that we thought were weird because they made them go underwater because that's not what we were taught. And uh, I would say, uh, yeah, for sure. We'll do a baptism probably in early July. So I would encourage you to be baptized. It's a great time. Usually we have had quite a few people get baptized. Old, young. I've taken her question one step further. Uh, There's been a number of times people have come to me that have said, you know, I did grow up in a church that practiced baptism by immersion. Uh, I've backslid for years. Is it okay if I get baptized again just to recommit myself to the Lord? I say, absolutely. Remember what it is. It's a public confession of your faith, identifying with Christ. You know what? We're not getting saved again because it never saved us the first time. So I, we, I have no problem having someone get baptized a second time, a third time. I don't care. It's a public confession of your faith, identifying with the death and resurrection, especially if we've you know, experienced a time of uh, backslidden sinful life. 
Why should we be baptized? Because God tells us to. That should be good enough right there. He says, be baptized. When we go to make disciples, we should want to encourage them to get baptized. Um, in uh, Romans 6 again, and we've mentioned those scriptures two, three times already, it talks about identifying with that picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. It pleases God. Now, when Jesus, I use the example when Jesus was baptized. I think when Jesus went in the water and came out of the water after being baptized and the Spirit lit at him in the form of a dove, we heard this voice from heaven say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, I don't think it was just because he got baptized, but I think it pleased God that he was baptized. You know, so there was, there was a lot more to it than that. That God, Jesus has pleased, pleased his Father. And then scriptural, bapti- bab- scriptural baptism is a testimony to the world. It's, it, is, it is a powerful testimony. You know, we've had uh, a couple, three, four different times we've had uh, people call us up, call me up and say, Mike, I want to be baptized. Uh, some of them have come to the church, but some of them not come to the church. Um, I think Peter and Tanya were involved with one in our backyard. We're, they, they invite some family. And they're the first one ever to have been baptized this way in their family. It's just an amazing testimony. We've, we've never had anybody come, and it's been college students, high school. Did you guys bring somebody? I can't remember who it was. Okay. You know, their parents, nobody heard who she said it was, right? Good. <laughs> Her parents probably weren't even saved. And, but they came and were blessed by this testimony, this public testimony demonstration of their faith. So, pleases the Lord, and like I said already, it's commanded by God. Um, and in Matthew ten thirty two, whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him I will confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Um, sometimes we hear that word confess, and obviously it does mean to speak the words too. But it is a public statement when we're baptized. We've done baptisms out at the lake, and people are coming by in the boats. And one year we had a, We've been in Leah Live now. We had our worship band out there. We're all in the backyard singing songs at the lake, and sound goes across the lake really cool. And we're baptizing people, and people are thinking, These lunatics, everything they said about them 20 years is still true. <laughs> but it is a powerful testimony. Okay, um, any questions on the baptism? No? Those are too easy. Good. And if you haven't been baptized, please contact me. We'll be putting a sign-up sheet in the, in the foyer one of these days. Um, I will probably be speaking on it on a Sunday morning also, but uh, get baptized. Yes. The name of Jesus. The Bible refers to it as a baptism of repentance. That he was out there in the, des- the desert proclaiming and preparing the way for the Lord. And basically his, his message was really easy. Your sinners, repent. And as they repented, he would baptize them. So ours is, it was like a, a picture 
of what was forthcoming as he was preparing a way for the Lord. But it definitely uh, wasn't identifying literally with the body or the death and burial of Christ like ours does. Good point. You'll actually see a couple other baptisms mentioned in the scripture. The baptism of Moses. There's two or three or four, maybe four at least. Yeah, maybe four different baptisms referred to. The one we identify with is the one that we see in the New Testament book of Acts. Great question. There is no other way. Okay, we're going to get started. Um, one thing that uh, uh, Jay brought up that I think is worth mentioning, um, who can baptize another person? We believe anyone. Can, uh, well, another believer would be good. But, <laughs> but other than that, yeah, it's, it's not, you don't need a priest or a pastor or an elder uh, to baptize someone. Um, you know, it's not about the person doing the baptizing. It's about the person being baptized. So, good, good point. I forgot to mention that. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about communion. Uh, this probably won't take very long. But I think it, again, needs to be made clear. One of the things that's kind of interesting, uh, I grew up Lutheran, if you didn't know that. My wife grew up Catholic, if you didn't know that. And neither one of us could have told you exactly what we believed about communion as a Lutheran or a Catholic. And there, there, are, different, there are different beliefs besides Lutheran, Catholic, and what I'm calling uh, the symbolic view. But um, probably good to know. And so I just want to touch on these kind of briefly to give us uh, a good idea. Now, if, if the Roman Catholic Church... Their position on communion. And their position was kind of the first position way back when, okay? And as things changed, um, the definition by different religious groups changed. They have a term that's called transubstantiation. That is what they believe takes place when they receive communion. What does transubstantiation mean? All it means is they believe literally that the bread and the wine, the cup and the bread, literally go through this process called transubstantiation and they become the physical presence of the body and blood of Jesus. So when the Catholic priest stands and holds that bread, if you've been to Catholic services, if you read the liturgy or listen to them, when they hold it up like this, they actually say the words, and may this sacrifice be pleasing unto you. Well, he's only been sacrificed once, and that was on a cross. But they say that because they believe it really becomes the flesh and blood. And when I took my premarriage counseling with the Catholic priest, well, the first Catholic priest, <laughs> we went through too. <laughs> this is one of the questions I asked him. Remember now, I was a biology major, so, you know, I was, I said, so wait a minute. I said, you're trying to tell me that if we, somebody took communion and before they hardly got back to their pew, they dropped dead of a heart attack and we did an autopsy, we'd find human flesh and human blood in the stomach of that person. So that'd be pretty cool. We could get his DNA. 
He said, no, you don't understand. I said, great, explain it to me. Well, not today. And the next time I got a call from my future father-in-law, we did this down in Bancroft, Iowa, and he had to call in the old retired Monsignor because the priest wouldn't meet with us anymore. (laughs) And the Monsignor was cool because he just talked about his trip to Israel. That's why Cindy and I got off to a really rough start. It was their fault. (laughs) So they literally believe, and that's what that word means. Now, the Lutheran, their word is consubstantiation. And I actually have a little harder time understanding this one than the Catholic one. Because I, 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 you know, I don't believe it, but I understand a mystical thing takes place when they take and receive communion, that it becomes the physical, and when I say the physical presence, so they're believing the physical presence of Jesus Christ is there at communion. Okay, so now with consubstantiation, here they believe that Christ is present, a physical presence, but the bread and the blood, or the cup, doesn't change into it. But the physical presence, and they use this phrase, um, it is truly and substantially present in, with, and under the forms of consecrated bread and wine. I, I really don't know. And I've asked my Lutheran friend, brothers that are pastors to explain that to me. And basically it comes down to this. Mike It's both. You eat the bread and you drink of the cup. They don't change into anything. There's no mystery changing. But it also is the body and blood of Jesus. So it's quite similar to transubstantiation. But in consubstantiation, there isn't this mystical change. You're getting both. I guess it's a better deal. I grew up Lutheran. I had no clue that's what I believed. <laughs> I guess that means I didn't believe it. And then another view, and, and I'm only covering the three main ones. There are a bunch of little offshoots. Um, there's even another group of uh, Catholic priests who got, they said, well, we don't buy into this transubstantiation tough stuff, but we can't go to consubstantiation. So they got another great big word I can't remember right now. It, it was trans something. But uh, we believe it's a symbolic or memorial view. We believe that the, the cup, whether it's grape juice or fermented juice wine, whether it's a cracker or a piece of bread, whatever the symbols are, it's symbolic. It's a spiritual, symbolic thing that we're doing. That the bread and wine, they don't confer any special, mystical, physical presence of Jesus Christ whatsoever. They are simply representations of the body and blood of Jesus And they're a reminder or a memorial of what Jesus did for us. So when we pray over the bread, we pray over the cup, it's symbolic to remind us of what he took on his body to pay the price for my sins. We pray over the cup. Did I say the cup there? The bread, the cup. We pray over the cup. It's again, the blood of Jesus. It's the symbolic to remind us of the blood of Christ. And, it, and, and, they can, and, and a better argument can be made here than in some of the other positions. If you, uh, the scripture, Mike, um, I think I put it on there, didn't I? The scripture in, in Corinthians? That, yeah. Um, I'm going to open mine so I don't have to turn my back here. Is 
start at verse 23. Yes. Okay, for I received from the Lord, this is at the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, their Passover meal, before Jesus is going to be arrested. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice he says, This is my body. So, you know, we would say, well, what he was holding in his hand was the bread from the Passover meal. It was symbolic of his body. He was speaking prophetically about what was going to happen. But they will say, you, you non-denominational evangelical types, you want to take the Bible literally everywhere else, but you don't want to take it literally here. And I would say, you know, we take the Bible literally when it's the most sensible thing to do. There's lots of things that are pictures, types, parables, things like that. And then it says, in the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, he said, this is the cup. This cup, excuse me, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink of it in remembrance of me. Now, if you read that carefully, what he's saying, it isn't my blood, is he? He's saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. So if you're going to get really literal, you're not drinking his blood, you're drinking the new covenant, which, of course, is not what we believe. We believe it is symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that washes away sin, the blood that allows us to be forgiven. And we believe it's a very serious thing. It's something we need to to do regularly, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats The bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Meaning what? You're being being guilty of rejecting what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And then he goes on, let's see, how far did I go? 28. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, when we receive communion, it's symbolic of what Jesus Christ did. We're remembering what the price for our sins was. The price for us to be born from spiritual death into spiritual life was his life. The abuse he took in his body, the shedding of his blood, symbolic of life. And we should then really search ourselves And by search ourselves, really, it's Holy Spirit. Search my heart. If you see any wicked way in me, reveal it to me now and grant repentance that I would would be quick to be forgiven. We want to, to remember and receive this meal with a pure heart, freshly forgiven. That's one of the reasons, you know, do this as often as you, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's good to be reminded of what it took for our sins to be forgiven and it will, it will also remind us again to search our hearts and repent. It prepares us to receive that forgiveness. And in that, I think it's the last slide, Mike, if you want to go to the next slide. Yeah. In this instruction from the Lord here, I think it's interesting as you read it, and I'm going to just go back into the Scripture, but you can leave that slide up. This is my body, which is for you. Do this. He, it's a command. So when we receive communion, we're being obedient. We're manifesting obedience to the word. 
And then he goes on and says, do this in remembrance of me. We're commemorating, memorializing what he did. So it would never be forgotten. And then he says, he goes on and says, for often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So it's a proclamation. We're acting in obedience. We're, we're commemorating and remembering. And we're proclaiming. And then it says, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The anticipation of his return. There's, so there, there's, there's a great deal of significance to communion. Now, how often should you take it? Boy, it doesn't really matter. It says, often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Uh, some churches do it every, every week. Some do it every other week. Some do it every first Monday. We happen to do it when? first Sunday. First Sunday. Um, there's no rules, regulations. Uh, do you have to do it only here in church? No, you can do it at home with your family. You can do it in your life groups. Um, you can do it with a Bible study. I do it with people in the nursing home. I do it with people in the hospital. I've done it with people in prison. It, it's, it's something that you do as a, as a memorial. Okay, any question on communion? All right, going through a lot of stuff. Last topic but not least. Hopefully we'll get done. Who's waving at me? Yes, you know you can just say Mike. Yes, good question. Um, we treat it similarly to baptism. Um, we say, parents, it's up to you. Do we think that? There's terrible sin taking place if some little kid comes up and takes communion and doesn't have a clue. No. It just doesn't mean anything, really. I would encourage parents, you know, to try to, to have your children understand. Um, you know, to do it in remembrance of me implies that we understood what took place. But we pretty much leave that up again to the parents. And granted, there's sometimes there's little kids come up here that I know there's no way they have a clue. What's going on? But quite frankly, we also have people come, and I can say this because some of them are from my own family, that visit the church, that there's no way on this earth they're saved. But that's between them and the Lord. Okay, tithing. If you haven't heard, and it's on the streets that we require 20% or you can't join this church. I'm here to say amen. If you'll buy into that, we'll, we'll take it. But it's not true. It's not true. It's 30. <laughs> That's right. Good, good answer. Is God really interested in your money? Well, yes and no. Yes, he's interested because we need it, not him. He's not interested in our money in that sense. He's interested in our money because money is one of the tools in our culture to use to meet our needs. He doesn't need our money. Okay? Um, we need it. That's why it's important to God, because He loves us. But that's really the only reason it's important to Him. 
But God is interested in our money. He's interested in how we earn it. He's interested in how we spend it. He's interested in how we save it. And he's interested in how we give it away. So he is very interested in our money. And we could go through lots of scriptures on all of those points. You know, don't be a lazy slug. Work hard. Don't steal. Um, be a good steward. Spend it wisely. Look to the ant you sluggard. Put away some things for savings. And give generously with a happy heart. So he is interested. Is it spiritual to talk about money? You know, when I was first starting the pastoring thing, I hated talking about money. And you know why? Because I hated it when pastors talked about money. And I figured as soon as I started talking about money, people quit listening or get nervous or leave the church or whatever. But you know, when you look at Scripture... It is one of the most supreme tests in the Scripture to see where a person's heart is. You know, as a matter of fact, in Matthew 6, he tells us in verse 21, uh, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So if our treasure is material things, and when I say money, really, you could just throw material things into that. But primarily in the Bible, he talks about money. Um, Is it spiritual to talk about money? For sure. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money. Not money. The love of money. It's an attitude. It's an attitude of the heart. And, and um, if you don't think God cares or talks about money, and you don't like preachers that preach about money, I've heard that. I've said that. I hate those preachers. All they do is talk about money. Well, some of them, that's really about all they do, but they do it wrong. But the Bible. 16 out of the 36 parables in the Bible deal with our attitude toward money and material things. 16 out of 36. Almost half. 10% of all the verses in the New Testament talk about our attitude about money and material things. 10%. There's 500 verses about faith, 500 verses about prayer, and almost 2,000 verses dealing with the attitude about money and material things. Everything from the widow's mite giving her money uh, to, to the unjust steward stories to um, the rich young ruler who, who wanted to know how to get to heaven and Jesus told him to give it all away and he walked away sad. But there's uh, over 2,000 verses. So when you look at that, you'd think, well, maybe our attitude about money is a big deal to God. And it's a big deal to God because it reveals our heart so often. So, um, God is interested in your money. Someone else is interested in your money. Not the church. <laughs> Satan. We'll see in Malachi that, you know, when, when he talks to Malachi, and again, it's an Old Testament scripture, but in Malachi, it was the law, this tithing thing. It's not the law now. But it was a law then, and, and if you didn't tithe under the law, God says, you're under a curse. Satan wants to keep God's people under a curse. And I, I believe, personally, not because of tithing, but because of a hard attitude, we, are, we can easily be under a curse if our heart attitude towards money and material things is wrong. Um, and, of course, there's a third person really interested in money. That'd be me and you, our own money. We have great interest in it. Um, you know, I have a friend who is a pastor of a church in the cities, 
And they track as best they can every member, tithing-wise. I don't know how they do it exactly because who'd know what their income is. But they act, he actually goes through the, the records. And if they're not tithing, and I know another church closer than that, they do the same thing. And if they think they're not tithing, they come and talk to you. And the reason that they both do that is they believe, first of all, what the Bible says about tithing, and second of all, there's a concern there that if there's an attitude in the heart towards giving that's not right, it's a sign of spiritual issues that really need to be addressed quickly or things are going to continue to go downhill. Now, personally, we don't do that. We've very, very seldom do I have a clue who does what. Um, with leaders in the church, we might look because leadership is expected to be tithers, believing in the vision of the church and being tithers. But other than that, um, very, very seldom do we look, ever look at that stuff. Um, what does tithe mean? The word tithe itself means one-tenth. So when the Bible talks about tithing, it's talking about one-tenth. Now we could go into a, you know, I've done a number of different sermons about tithing from different perspectives. One of my favorites is talking about first fruits. You know, the Bible talks about giving the first fruits throughout the Old Testament. There were religious holidays, the festival of fruits, First fruits, what it meant was give back to the Lord. Remember, they were an agrarian, an agricultural culture. Let's go give back. Let's just say if you had an apple orchard, the first ripe apples, take the first fruits and take them to the temple and give them to the Lord's storehouse. Trusting and believing that the rest is going to come and will be sufficient. So that picture of first fruits is, is, is a picture of the tithe. It's a step of faith, believing and trusting that God will meet our needs. And there's more to it than that that we'll see here in just a little while. But it goes beyond that. But it's a tenth. Ten percent is God's perfect plan. And as I said in the Old Testament with Leviticus, it was actually law. Um, Some people say that's Old Testament stuff. It was the law. Well, the law was given in Leviticus. Tithing started way back in Genesis with Abraham and Melchizedek. It, the tithing principle preceded the law of tithing. And the tithing principle follows after, long after the law has done away with and fulfilled by Christ. So tithing as a principle was there at the beginning. I believe it's there now. And in the middle there, there was a time frame under the law where it was actually the law. As a Jew, you were commanded to give a tenth. You got, run, you got ten, 10 lambs, one of them goes to the Lord. You got 10 oxen, one of them goes to the Lord. Harvest 100 bushels of wheat, 10 bushels go to the Lord. It was the law. It's no longer the law, it's a principle that, that is in place. Whose money is it? In Malachi 3 7, you know, in, in Malachi, it's a prophet. And it is Old Testament, just uh, to make sure we understand that. But he says, we'll we'll read all a little bit of Malachi 3 in a minute. But in 7 it says, return to me. And you say, how shall we return? And he talks to him about, you've been robbing from me. You've been stealing from me. And the people look at at the prophet and go, what do you mean we're stealing from God? How could we be stealing from God? And he says, it's in your tithes. 
You've been stealing and robbing and keeping what is mine. So under the law, that was, the, that was how serious it was in God's eyes. It was a, a big deal. Um, most of the time, we got three different groups of people in a room like this when you talk about tithing and talk about money. Um, the first group would say, it's my money. I worked hard. I earned it. I can do with what I want with it. God's blessed me. It's mine. Second group would probably look at it and say, well, okay, 10% belongs to the Lord. 90% belongs to me. Then there's a third group. The third group would say, well, it all belongs to the Lord. And in his generosity, he's saying, give me 10% back to me what is already mine, and I will bless you in such a way that the 90% more than meets your needs. Three distinct groups, three distinct heart attitudes. And when you look at that, you note the difference. It's, you know what? I'll share with God when I want to share with God because what's mine is mine. Second group, well, okay, I'll share with God because I have to, and I hate it. But I don't want to be cursed, so I'll do it. And third group would say, it's all God, and thank you, God, you share with me. And I think you can see pretty quickly which attitude God would like to see in his children. The tithe is 10%, simple, simple to calculate. I personally believe it's very clear that it's the first fruits. Um, so people often say questions like, well, if you've got a job and you get a paycheck, is it on, is it on the gross or is it on the net? In other words, is it before they take all the other stuff out or isn't it? And I would say, well, tell me what the first fruits means. The first fruits is the first fruits of all you earn. So I believe if you want to be as accurate biblically as you can, the tithe is 10% of your gross income. People oftentimes come to me that aren't tithing and they say, I don't think I could do this. You want to? Well, yeah, but. And I say, you know what? Start with what you have the faith for. It's a principle. God will bless us as we follow his biblical principles. It's not a law. It's not a sin. I believe, we believe as a church, it's not a sin when we don't follow the principles of God's word. It's a sin when we break the commands of God's word. But if we want to walk in the fullness of his blessings, follow his principles and we will be blessed. Clearly. You can see people in the world that are blessed because they do things in a biblical way better than sometimes Christians do. So the tithing, 10%, and I've got a whole section here. And I, I'm, Did you give them a scripture sheet? Okay. And we're not going to go through all those scriptures, but if you look through them, you'll see uh, in Genesis, there's talks about Melchizedek and, and Abraham preceding the law. It talks about Jacob. It talks about Moses and the law. And then it talks about Malachi, which is hundreds of years after Moses. Uh, it talks about um, tithing. And we're going to go ahead and read in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. It says this, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? You have robbed God. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? 
in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the fields cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. He is telling them that they are under a curse because of their heart issues. Remember, he doesn't need our money. It's all his money. It's all his stuff. And he has a principle in place that he will honor by blessing us when we bless him. And we bless him not so much by giving him our money. We bless him by being obedient to his principles. And really that's a picture of our heart. And that's what he's really interested in is our heart in the first place. So when you, you look at this, and we can take it so much further, but I've got to quit in five minutes. But in the New Testament... The Old Testament is really a picture. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, oh no, it goes beyond that. Remember when he says, if you lust in your heart for a woman, you've already committed adultery. Well, wait a minute. The law was just against adultery. Now if I lust after a woman, I've committed adultery? Uh Uh-huh. He says, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. Wait a minute. The law said murder. Now it's worse under Jesus and grace? I don't get it. The law was this thing. The tithe for a Christian should be like the beginning place. The beginning place. After that tithe, there's our offerings and our alms. What do you do with your tithes? Where do they go? Well, I believe, and again, the scriptures are here that we're looking at, but in the Old Testament, they took it to the storehouse. What was the storehouse? It was part of the temple system. And they would take it to the storehouse. And they would use the, the animals, the food, whatever. They'd use it to, food, to eat. They would use it for all their sacrificial uh, religious ceremonies. It provided for the work of the ministry. We believe, and people argue about this, okay, but we believe that the local church is the storehouse in today's system of the church on earth today. We believe that the finances that come into the church through the tithe are what enable the church to function and to do the work of the ministry. And trust me, if everybody in any church tithed, it would be astounding what that church could do. The last time I read a Barna Research study... um, Evangelical churches that teach and believe in tithing, they gave on the average between 3 to 7%. If the churches really tithed, it would be astounding what a church could do. There wouldn't be pleas for this and that and the other thing. And you know what? The church could actually do what it was called to do in terms of social ministry. We would have, the churches would have the finances to do these things that the people now look to the government to do. So we believe it's, it's to be brought to the local storehouse, which we believe is the local church. Basically, tithe where you're fed. People ask me a lot, Mike, I want to send part of my tithe to this ministry that I get really blessed by on TV. I say, I understand that, and it's not up to me to tell you what to do with your tithe, but I would encourage you to consider giving your offering to that ministry if they're blessing you. And consider prayerfully to continue to give your tithe to the local church so that they can continue to function and meet the needs 
of the local church. Um, when it comes to the tithe, you won't find many places in Scripture where God says, test me. Prove me, some translations say. Test me on this. You know, some churches do the 90-day test. They challenge their congregation for 90 days, tithe, and see how God blesses you. God says here to the people in the Old Testament, you've been robbing from me, you've been stealing from me, you're not doing the tithes and offerings like you're supposed to. Test me, prove to me, and he says, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings upon you. I could tell you lots of testimonies, and when we do this in a, in a service, we'll have a few testimonies, but I'll share this one before I quit, and it actually had to do with the church as an entity. Um, I, ha- I wasn't a tither. I got convicted driving home on the road listening to a radio program when I was working for Relco down in the middle of Nebraska. And I remember we came back, and at that time, Ken Lundin was the pastor of the church, and we were small and struggling, and there were weeks when we couldn't pay him when we were supposed to pay him. We'd have to wait until the next week offering to pay him and hope we could catch up so the next two-week period we could pay him. And he never complained. Bless his heart. And we, we got back. I came back from that road trip with Relco. I was working for Relco at the time. And I said, Cal, guys, you know what? We teach tithing to the people. We as a church don't tithe. If it's good enough for the individuals, why don't we as a church tithe to other ministries? And after that meeting, we started tithing. 10%, and it's true yet today, 10% of the tithe that comes into this church, 10% of that goes out to other ministries and missions. And then we give above and beyond that to other places. And that, that was the last time ever that we couldn't pay Pastor Ken. And the church has really been blessed ever since. You know, we don't have coffers full of money, but we've always got enough to make things work. So I would just encourage you and challenge you, you know, another thing is we love to give God the leftovers. (laughs) Well, if I've got anything left at the end of the month, I'll try to put it in that box in the back. Now just think about that for a second. If, If we believe God is our provider, And everything he gives us is from him. And he's asking us to give back as an act of faith and a fact of obedience. And we give him the leftovers. And yet we pray for his very best, don't we? We want your best, Lord. Just encourage you to pray about this. And um, we could go into a lot more depth on this. But I would encourage you to study Malachi. But you'll see it. I want to read one, one more scripture in the New Testament. Um, Jesus actually commends the, the, the tithe. It's in Matthew 23, 23. The scribes and Pharisees, and the Pharisees are trying to make him look bad. And, and he says, Woe to you, five scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe your mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Jesus is saying, you know what, you should have done this justice and righteousness and mercy thing, but you shouldn't neglect the tithing. And we believe that the tithe is a principle that's in effect for today. And one of the first things I generally ask somebody when they come to me for financial counseling is, do you tithe? If you want to fix your mess, I would encourage you to try tithing. 
your attitude towards money will change. Let's close in prayer. Lord, again, I thank you for tonight. Again, Lord, I pray that anything that I've said that is not of you would fall to the ground, be worthless, and not impact any of us. God, I pray you would stir in each one of our hearts, answer the questions we might have in our spirit. Lord, I pray in all these things, God, that we would handle your truth carefully. God, and our, that our heart's desire would always be to honor you in all these things. Lord, that we would not ever have a critical or judgmental spirit towards those who do things differently than us, but God, that we would stand for truth, Father, but always in love. Lord, I pray you would uh, challenge us in the area of our giving. God, we are to be cheerful givers according to your word. God, that our attitudes would be right. Lord, we thank you for the blessings and the abundance of, of, of material things that you have blessed this church with, that we have been able to do the things that you call us to do. God, we know that you are our provider. So I thank you. Pray for your protection over everyone as we go our separate ways. We pray for our worship team as they practice tonight. God, that your anointing would be on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Next week, I'll be handing out uh, the spiritual giftings test that you will then be able to take and then bring it back the following week, and we'll look at your spiritual gifts also. Um, So next week we'll be talking about spiritual gifts, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I forget what else. Oh, tongues. We'll talk about tongues. You can hardly wait, right?